before I read it, let me give you the context. Um, a couple of months ago, uh, I concluded a series of sermons from the letter of First Peter. Peter obviously was one of the disciples of Jesus. And we began that study by looking at what the Bible teaches us about Peter, how he had been a fisherman. That was his family business. He was, uh, Jesus called him to be uh, one of the original 12 disciples. He became somewhat of an informal spokesman for the disciples. We would find that when questions would be asked of the group, he typically would be the one to answer. And then you know that he denied Jesus on the night of Jesus' arrest, three times said that he did not know him. That caused him great guilt and remorse. After the resurrection of Christ, uh, he restored Peter not only to fellowship with himself, but also his call to shepherd Christ's sheep, uh, to be a, a pastor, evangelist, leader in the church. Well, we come to Acts chapter 2, and it's now... 10 days or so since Jesus has ascended to heaven. And there was a feast observed annually by the Jewish people called Pentecost. It was a feast that was observed 50 days after the Passover feast. Um, now on that day, on the day of Pentecost, earlier in Acts chapter 2, it tells us that Peter is with the other disciples. Now remember, uh, Judas had killed himself. They had replaced him with a man named Matthias. They are gathered together in one place, and what Christ had promised was that the Holy Spirit, the Helper, would come after him. Now the Holy Spirit comes, and it's like the sound of a mighty wind. And one of the res results of that is they go into the streets, these men, and they begin to speak in other languages. In other words, they were communicating with people in languages they had never learned. And Acts 2 tells us the various nations that were represented there that had come to that place because of Pentecost. The people hear them in their own language. And someone says, well, what's happening here, these, these men are acting drunk. They are drunk. Well, it's just 9 in the morning, we're told. And Peter, at that point, after such an accusation or criticism is said, Peter stands and he addresses he addresses the crowd of people that have gathered around. And he preaches a sermon. We don't believe we have the entire sermon. We have the essence of the sermon. Now, in that sermon, Peter focuses on Jesus Christ, and it's somewhat of a six-point outline about Christ. Uh, here's the outline. First, Peter says that Jesus was a man, though he was uh, proven to be more than a man to be divined by the miracles he performed. Second point, Jesus was put to death by wicked hands, though that was according to God's purpose. It wasn't an accident. Third point, Jesus was raised from the dead, exactly as the prophets had foretold. Point four, Jesus was exalted to God's right hand, and from there he has now poured out his spirit that they were seeing evidence of today. Point five, Jesus forgives, offers forgiveness and the Holy Spirit to all who will repent and believe and as a result are baptized. And then the last point, the sixth point, he thus adds them, new believers, to his new community. Now verse 37, as it comes to the end of the sermon, it describes the impact that it had on the listeners. 
you follow along with me. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sin of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, look down at verse 41, and this gives us their response to those words. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. They were baptized to make a public profession, to identify with Jesus publicly. And verse 41 says there were about 3,000 people, souls, that were added that day to the, to the number of believers, to what we call, the, or the Bible calls, the body of Christ. So the body of Christ that day on earth grew from, we know it was 120 earlier, now it's multiplied by 26 times to over 3,000. So now there are at least, at that point, at least 3,120 true followers of Christ. And it happens like that with Peter's sermon. Well, then what? Did they go home and carry on as usual? Did their lives go on as before? Not at all. So now I want us to read the passage we'll look at for the next few moments, verses 42 and following. Here's what they did next. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now let me lead us in a word of prayer. Our fathers, we come to this, your word. We ask that your Holy Spirit might now open our eyes, that your word would land as seed on good soil and bear much fruit. In Christ's name, amen. They did not go on as before. Their lives were changed. And it's Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, tells us that they devoted themselves to these four things. Uh, and briefly, as we prepare for communion, uh, let's look at those. First, they devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles, the apostolic teaching. If you're not very familiar with this kind of terminology, the apostles, that word means one who is sent. The original 12 disciples, as I mentioned, Judas killed himself. He was replaced by Matthias, and then later Paul was added. So there were 13 apostles. It was not just a descriptive term of those who were sent. It was the office. We believe the, the apostolic office was filled by 13 men, these 13 plus Paul, I mean uh, those 12 plus Paul. So when you hear the term apostolic teaching, it meant teaching from the apostles. If you hear the phrase uh, apostolic times, it means during their lifetime. That, that's simply what it means in the Bible. And so these, these 3,000 plus new believers are, are devoted to the, the teaching of the apostles. They are completely dependent on this. And they give their allegiance to what they are being taught. Jesus had taught them during his public ministry. 
Then after his resurrection, he taught them over a period of 40 days. Basically, it was Old Testament summary and a survey and, and the, the fulfillment of prophecies and all that. They, they were firsthand witnesses to the teaching of Jesus. Now they are passing that on uh, to, to others. And Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2, verse 2, and we looked at this in the series on 1 Peter, he says, Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up to salvation. When a baby is born, uh, a healthy baby is born, uh, it has a natural and normal and healthy appetite for its mother's milk. The baby needs nourishment, and as it takes nourishment, it grows. Peter takes that simple picture and says that's like a new believer. As newborn babes, as newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, and he's talking about God's Word. New believers have a natural craving for that spiritual milk. Therefore, we devote ourselves to apostolic teaching, to the teaching of the Scriptures and learning from it. Now, if you think that Christianity is just one flavor of ways to reach God and, and no difference between this and other religions... In this, one, in this one area, if you contrast this with many Eastern religions, in many of those, they say, empty your mind. Empty your mind. You're not encouraged to think. In some cases, they deny learning. But it's not that way in the Christian church. We are to learn. There is a yearning to know God and to know Christ and to know about the world that he has created. It drives scientific inquiry. Uh, I want to know about God and God from his word. So in, in Christ's church, in his, in his body of now 3,000 plus people, there's a body of revealed truth. And there's submission to that teaching, to that apostolic authority. Christ leads his church, this new church, through his apostles. That is why, as a church now, we emphasize the Bible. Uh, that's why we emphasize preaching in our services and, and Sunday school and small group Bible studies and why we encourage you to read good Christian books and to develop your mind and to love God with your mind. That learning was part of the early church. They devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles. Now, I just jammed this in the sermon. It's a quote I like. I don't know that it fits, but hey, R.C. Sproul, who's I think in his latter 70s now, uh, and when asked about his retirement, that he's never retired, he said, I will retire when they pry my cold, dead fingers off of my Bible. I like that. Because we always need, we'll never reach a point where we've learned enough. I don't mean just knowing facts to be able to regurgitate knowledge base like that, but where it affects our lives, where our lives are brought into submission to it. So when it says they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, they were learning, they were applying. How does this impact my life? How does this impact how I relate in the work, in my marriage, to society? They were applying it. That's what it means that they were devoted to it. Are you devoted to biblical teaching? Second mark of this early church was fellowship. This was the second thing they were devoted to. And here's a technical term, koinonia. Only time it's used in the New Testament as it's used here is in this particular passage. It means to share in common with. To share in common with. They had a common identity. They have a common purpose. They have a common goal. And they enjoyed life together. 
I told some students the other day that before I was a Christian, the last people I liked to be around were Christians. They made me feel uncomfortable. Not that they tried to, not that they were doing anything wrong. I just felt awkward and guilty, and I just I preferred not to be around them. And when I came to know Christ as a high school student, interesting, those were the very people I gravitated toward. Why? I wanted to talk to them. I wanted to discuss God. I wanted to, I wanted to fellowship because now we had something in common that we had not had in common before. <clears throat> as I mentioned, Luke writes this. And he gives, in verses 44 and following, some very down-to-earth illustrations of this fellowship. And he does it with what some call the most controversial verses in the entire New Testament. I'm talking about verse 44. All who had believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. I am told that everyone who has argued for communism uses these verses. This was not communism as we think of it as a political system. Why do I say that? Well, first of all, it's voluntary. This sharing was not commanded by the apostles. It was not coerced by them or by the government. The people retained the right of private ownership. Nothing was confiscated from people. So this was a voluntary distribution to those who were in need because they were now in a common family. They were brothers and sisters, and there was a spirit of generosity which had been produced by their newfound faith in Jesus and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That's part of the fellowship, the sharing in common with. So some in the early church, just like today, some were in desperate poverty, while others were not. I don't know if they were wealthy, but they had enough. And the sharing and the distribution then were driven by generosity, Christian generosity. No one was required to do this. No one was required to give up their private property. They gave because they wanted to. In a healthy church, there is generosity. Uh, I see it here. I hear of needs that come up, or you hear of needs that come up. And I'll get a phone call. Or someone will say, can I drop by your house? And they'll say, I want to help so-and-so, but I don't want them to know it. How can I do that? And I want to help financially. And, and that, that's a mark. That's a normal thing. That should happen in the church. And it happened right here with these new believers. Let's press on. Third thing they were devoted to was the breaking of bread. We believe that means two things. One, the Lord's Supper that they observed in worship. Christ had instituted with his disciples in the upper room on the night of his arrest, the Lord's Supper. This was a regular practice in their, their corporate worship. But secondly, it was the common meal, meals they shared together, even that which we call the agape meal or the, the love meal that, that we think came at the end of their corporate worship and they would fellowship and they, they would eat together. Uh, and they met, they talked, and they did so in each other's homes and they they planned, they dreamed together. Can you imagine the questions of these brand new Christians at that time in history? What does it mean to go to the synagogue and to continue to worship? How do we talk to others about Christ? What is the nature of things to come? When will Jesus come back? And that's part of the, the breaking of bread. Fourth, he says that they were devoted to... Now, look at it carefully there. Um, I've lost my verse number. It's at the end of 42. They were devoted to so-and-so and so-and-so. And what type of prayers? 
You see the word? The prayers. Right, so he sticks this little word in the prayers. We think by doing that, it just wasn't they were devoted to prayer. They were devoted to the prayers, which was the daily corporate prayers at the temple. Luke, in the next chapter, chapter 3, he begins when he says, Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. That's like 3 in the afternoon. So it was a set time that they would go there and they would pray. These were still Jews. All these people that had been converted, best we know, they were all Jewish, but now they're Jewish Christians. And prayer at the temple at set times was ingrained in them. That was normal behavior. And so as followers of Christ, indwelt by now the fullness of the Holy Spirit, they made sure that they were at the temple for those times of prayer. They loved to meet together to pray. They loved to meet together in the temple to pray, and no doubt when they met in homes and when they gathered in the corporate assembly, what we call worship was called ecclesia, the assembly, when they gathered for that, they would pray. John Calvin said, It is certain that he, Luke, is speaking about public prayer. Therefore, it is not enough for people to make their prayers at home by themselves unless they all assemble together to pray. So this is a description of what they did together, corporate prayer. <clears throat> when we look at our church, uh, I, it, it, of these four marks, this is the one that probably perplexes me the most. We are given to the apostles' teaching. We are given to fellowship. We are giving to the breaking of bread and all sorts of settings. The, the prayer one is harder to answer because we have, we have many, many, almost 500 people in small groups Prayer occurs in those small groups. Prayer occurs in our Sunday school classes. Prayer occurs in our personal lives and in our families. Prayer occurs um, numerous, numerous times every week. But the area of corporate prayer, not just here, but in the Christian church in America, is rare, if you think about it. Just glance at any church's calendar, and it's rare that you see that. I think that we believe, well, we're praying, but it's a better setting with maybe eight or ten of us that are in this discipleship group. But there's still a place for corporate prayer. And this was an element in the life of these believers that they gathered uh, corporately for prayer. And so I long for the day to see corporate prayer vital in the church. I know some of you weren't born then, but after 9-11, it, it was not on you. We put a sign out there and opened the doors, and we had noon prayer meetings. And we would have almost as many people as are seated here right now. <laughs> that was unprecedented before or since, and, and just people off the street, they would come in uh, during that time. And tonight we will gather at a monthly time on the Lord's Day. You know, we've tried to pick the most convenient time, Sunday at 6 p.m., the first Sunday of the month. And there'll probably be 25, maybe 30 of us, roughly 4 to 5% of those who are here this morning in corporate worship. And I would ask you, as I ask myself the question, why would you not be there? And if we think, well, that's, that's something really, really mature, godly, super spiritual people do, right? How long have these people been in the kingdom? A matter of days. 
maybe weeks. They didn't have to grow for 10 years as a Christian and learn all sorts of religious jargon before they could pray. They immediately, it backed like newborn babes. So these are the four things. Look at the result then of what happened in verse 43. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. There was an awe about what God was doing. There was an expectation. There was a sense that God is a consuming fire. They, there was a sense that the Holy Spirit is, has come in power, and they, they've seen this. They, they're seeing God work. And then verse 47, the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Now, as I read John Calvin and others and look back through the ages of how this verse comments on this verse, all would say they were fishing for men. They were not passive. These early believers were ambassadors for Christ. We can assume they were giving their best efforts to take the good news to those that they knew. And they strove to the best of their ability to gather into the fold uh, people that would respond to the gospel. And yet, at the end of the day, how does Luke describe it? The Lord added to their number. He was the one who's producing the fruit. So we are to work and labor and evangelize and fish for men and make disciples of all nations and recognize the brevity of the time that we have and be ambassadors for Christ. Uh, and at the end of the day, it's the Lord who causes fruit to come. So as we come to the Lord's table, uh, how does our church reflect what this early church did from 2,000 years ago? We need to have a vision of the church so that we come together. We do so with delight and rejoicing and in awe of what God has done and is doing. But here's the last thing I want to leave you with. When you look at these four things, apostolic teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer, what struck me, they're so simple. <laughs> Anybody can do this. Illiterate, that most of them, probably half of them were illiterate in that day in the Roman Empire could have been. Uh, you, you don't need a master's degree. You don't need to have uh, been around the Bible for 10 years before you can enter in. Uh, any of us can pray. Um, any of us can, can learn from Scripture and just ask someone to teach us if, we can't, if we're not able to read it for ourselves. So there's no national limitation. There's no racial uh, limitation. There's really no age limitation here. The invitation from Christ is, is for all to, to, to believe, to, to trust in him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the fact that you change lives. Many of us sit here, and we live 2,000 years removed from these brothers and sisters back there in Jerusalem in the first century, but, but we can relate to what you did in their lives. You transferred us as you did them from the, the domain of darkness into the kingdom of light. And we've experienced that hunger and thirst for your word. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so we've panted for you. We've experienced the vitality of fellowship and corporate worship with the Lord's Supper and, and fellowship and, and also in prayer. Uh, we pray that we would be like them, devoted, that our lives might be characterized by that one word, devoted to these things with the brief time that you've given us on earth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.